When I sing that song we just sang, Come Thou Fount, I usually remember a study I did on the life of George Whitfield, who was the great open-air preacher during the first great awakening in our country, um, kind of pre-revolutionary war time frame. And Robert Robinson is the one who wrote that song. He wrote it having been converted under Whitfield's preaching. And so Whitfield, who preached with tears, gave the booming message of the gospel and Robert responded and then out of the overflow of his conversion wrote that hymn. And then as it says in the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We all feel that when we sing it, I think, right? You kind of feel the, you resonate with that temptation. Actually, Robert, in his testimony, according to church history, did wander away for some time and reached uh, old age and was in a stagecoach in this final season of his life and a little girl next to him uh, was singing that song, started humming that song and, and singing Come Thou Fount just spontaneously next to him and it prompted everything back in his mind and he repented and kind of re-embraced his faith in the Lord. That's a powerful story of truth and providence, evangelism, and how God designed circumstances for people to come in contact with truth. And where they are brought before Jesus, one of two things always happens. It's the crossroads of either he is the lovely savior and the solution to our sin, or he's a stumbling block, an offense, someone who is rejected. The Lord and his word either softens the heart or hardens the heart. And it's incredible that that reality is going on all the time wherever the truth is presented. What we have in front of us is a text that is a story written three times out of four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give this encounter of Jesus with a rich, young ruler. A person who had it all in terms of wealth, And in terms of health, he was young, had vitality, vigor. And then he was a ruler, a ruling leader in the synagogue as a Jew that would have extended him great power. So he had health, he had wealth, and he had himself as a ruler. And that's who Jesus is encountering in the providence of God where he gives him the gospel. This kind of story that we're going to look at prompted me to think about evangelism and think about it in terms of the church, in terms of individuals, in terms of my own life. What does it look like to be faithful to give the gospel and to be an evangelist? Christians are called to witness. Christians are called to be faithful to give truth to people. And there's a lot of ways that churches alleviate guilt for evangelism. They'll program for it. They'll brand evangelism. They'll try to get you to join some kind of campaign in the name of evangelism. A lot of times they'll equip you to give a pitch um, for evangelism. You remember some of the programs of the 70s and 80s called Evangelism Explosion. Again, good-natured programs out of a good heart, but sort of made evangelism more like a door-to-door salesman approach. It really was where you had coordinated things you would say and do and literature you'd give out. 
There are evangelistic rallies and massive movements where arenas have been filled with different speakers who give evangelistic sermons. And through those things, people do come in contact with truth and do believe. But I think it's important for us to weigh all of these campaigns and all of these thrusts and emphases in church with how Jesus did it. How did Jesus evangelize? What did he say to people when he encountered people? How did he come to meet people in these encounters? And then what happened when he would say what he said? A lot of churches will look at a text like we're going to read and say, this really doesn't apply to the New Testament church and what we're supposed to do. Well, let's ask that question and see if we're supposed to evangelize like Jesus did as I read this text. Let me read for us verses 16 through 22 of our text. This is under the title, Winning Our World Like Jesus. Verse 16, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. How are we supposed to make this happen for us in our own lives as we encounter people? Are we really supposed to say, you know, if you want Jesus, you need to sell everything you have, like right now, and follow him? Here's another question. Did Jesus fail in his evangelistic outreach? Because this man went away sorrowful. He was vexed in his spirit, literally. Very sad, very distraught. Another question, did Jesus, by saying, keep these commandments and sell everything you have, was he teaching a works-based salvation? Something that he could do, but we can't do. So do we just let ourselves out of the accountability of an encounter that Jesus had that is recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke for our edification? No, we can't throw this out. We've got to figure out what this means and what it means for our evangelistic life. What does it mean to evangelize? You've got to start with that word evangelism. It comes, shrink it down to the word evangel, which is the word gospel. It is uh, a transliteration from a Middle English um, word evangel, where we get the word gospel. The Greek euangelion is what is transliterated to evangel. You, meaning it's a, all right, you Greek grammar or um, grammar people, it's a diphthong. It's E and U. It means it's you in the sound. It means um, good. That's what it means. Or well. And then angelion, where you hear that word angel or angelos, messenger, good message. So you've heard it modernized. Good news. What's the gospel? It's the good news. 
It's good news. Well, how is this good news? <laughs> we, we have to figure this out. Mark 16, 15 is where Jesus said, go. He's commissioning the church, go into all the world and proclaim. That means give it out, the gospel, to the whole creation, to everybody. The euangelion, the good news, the evangel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4 is where Paul defines the gospel. He says, brothers, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you and which you received and you stand. Verse 3, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. Here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. In kids speak, when I would teach, how do you know what the gospel is? I would say it's the D, the B, and the R. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. You got to have those elements when you talk about the gospel. What is good news? Good news is that Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again. And he's the way to be saved. The word evangelist or evangelism is used 33 times in the New Testament it's good news. It's what we are commissioned to give. And I'm making the case, I want to argue that Jesus is giving good news here in a text that ends with sadness. It's the same good news that Paul gives throughout his New Testament letters. It's the same good news that Peter writes of in his letters. It's the same good news that John writes of in the gospel and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. People dismiss this approach because it sounds harsh. Well, Jesus' approach is the same throughout his gospel encounters, if you think about it. Follow me by denying yourself and taking up your cross. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life for my sake will find eternal life. Unless you leave father, mother, sister, and brother on my behalf, you're not worthy of me. You're leaving them should look even like hatred to them because you love Christ so much. Count the cost. Consider the cost. You're going to suffer if you follow me. Leave the world. Bank on persecution. What is this in terms of good news? How is this good news? This is why churches will just emphasize grace and leave off repentance. Believing but not having to turn away from your sin as you believe. People will cancel that part of the gospel to make it palatable, to make it attractive. But what are you attracting people to? The pulpit substitute something else for, the, for this kind of good news. People will brand pragmatic methods and say the end justifies the means. Our, we're trying to brand ourselves throughout and more and more people are re- being reached out to. More and more people are coming under our tent. And so how can this be bad? Physical pragmatic approaches breed physical pragmatic analyses and they say, well, more people, more money, more influence, that's evangelism. Well, let me say this. Evangelism is never a contest. Evangelism is never a business strategy. Evangelism is never a soup kitchen. Evangelism is not a debate class. It's not an inspiring event. It's not an experience. It's not creative arts. It's not political activism. It's not social activism. And it's not ecumenism where everybody just comes no matter what doctrinally. We just all just come together in this ooze. 
It's not a religious attendance. It's not canvassing. It's not branding. It's not stumping. And it's not media influence. Now, am I saying that any of those things can't be, you know, in addition to evangelism or just like we spoke the truth through a program, VBS. VBS was a program. The evangelism is what happens in the program. You don't want the tail to wag the dog. And I'm bringing this up because a lot of people will do that. They will, they will prop up the event or the strategy or the shtick or the pitch or the spiel or the movement. All these things that in, inspire all kinds of people, believers and unbelievers alike. They're very inspired about these gatherings and these events and these programs. And they're missing evangelism altogether. You say, what do I mean by that? Well, just look how Jesus preached. Look at what he said. Look at the result. That's a very, very clear example and model for evangelism. Hitting close to Noma, K through 12 Christian school is not evangelism. It's a great thing. We educate. We We are salt and light in the world. And the gospel is given through that. But just by having a school, that is not necessarily getting it done or a seminary for that matter we're raising up preachers we're training them etc etc we just have to be careful to say what is the pure outreach that is called evangelism what is the gospel and how do we get it to people let's bring it down to seed evangelism according to scripture is speaking the whole counsel of god not just picking and choosing all of it or you're speaking Parts of it in light of all of it. God is that big. He's as big as he is in the Old Testament. He's as scary as he is in the Old Testament. He's as scary as he is in the book of Revelation. And he's as gracious as he looks in the life and ministry of Christ. He's as harsh as Jesus comes across. He's as gentle as Jesus comes across. We've got to say it all. Sin is damnable, sending people to hell who are there already forever. Heaven is awesome forever. It's fellowship. It's only one way to heaven. It's through Christ. I added to my written definition. Sorry. It's to people. It's um, dictated and directed by the Holy Spirit and how he creates divine appointments that are providential. It's speaking truth as the means through which the Lord uses us to make disciples. He uses Christians to speak the truth to make disciples. The truth can go through unbelievers too and make disciples. A disciple's a learner who's awakened in the heart. It's regeneration to become a follower of Christ. And this person who becomes a follower of Christ is submitting to Jesus as Lord, giving their full allegiance to Christ. What's the irreducible minimum of the message of the gospel? It's simply this. There's one true God. He's one God, three persons. That's the Trinity. It's Second person of the Trinity is Jesus, fully God, fully man, who's accomplished righteousness, who is righteousness and has accomplished righteousness through a perfect life so that he could die on behalf of all who would believe in him. He's the perfect once for all substitutionary sacrifice for all of the people who would ever believe on him, all of their sins are subsumed in the sacrifice. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. Full resurrection. He's ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. Christians are those who during their lifetime repent of their sin. They are making a 
commitment to leave the world and to follow Christ with a life of full allegiance and submission to him, recognizing that he's the only way. Now, does every new believer have to be able to recite something like that? No, not at all. It's just when you give the gospel, you're giving whatever you say of the gospel in light of all that I just said, at least. You are. Whether you know all of this or not, we're not denying any part of the Bible as we give the truth. You don't pick and choose. We're not Thomas Jefferson who cut out the miracles and all the supernaturalism in the Bible. I mean, we, don't, we don't pick and choose the scripture, we, we just preach the gospel as is appropriate for people to hear it. What's the outcome of preaching the gospel like this? The outcome is whatever God does with his word in the heart of a hearer. The same word that hardens the heart softens the clay. I mean, it, it, it you know, the same sun that, that hardens, hardens the dirt, you know, softens the clay. The word has that two-effect dynamic. It's hardening people and softening people. Jesus is either grace or he is the offense all at the same time. And that's all dictated and determined by God. So what is our role in that? Some sow, some water, and some reap. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. We're all just participants. And you're picking up where people left off, usually, when you're talking about God with people. You're in the stream and flow of a conversation that started with a grandparent that was praying for that baby by the crib. And, and you just have no idea when you are talking to that coworker or that person at the, the club or your neighbor or whatever, where they are in terms of this process. Some have sown, some water, and some reap. So 1 Corinthians 3, so verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to the labor. We're just laborers. We just get our wage for what we did. We just show up, do something, say something, and leave the results to God. We're fellow workers. You are God's field. You're God's building. We're just part of a bigger project that's bigger than us. People's salvation is up to God. I'm an extrovert, I think. Sometimes I think I'm an introvert, but I'm pretty extroverted. I'm pretty comfortable once I'm speaking to speak out loud. So if I believe that the gospel is the only way that people can be saved and it's the determiner between heaven and hell, why don't I preach the gospel all the time in any crowd setting that I'm in front of? Like, for instance, being at Costco. At the pizza checkout, why don't I stand on one of those little tables by the side, by the little straw and drink dispenser, and just start preaching? I could probably pull it off for a little bit. I don't know how long, but for a little bit. And I think I could get people listening to me, but is that really what Jesus wants me to do? I think he wants all of us, introverts, extroverts, whoever you are, to just do it like Jesus did it. And it begins with the providence of God. What is he providing? Let's look at his approach. This is the header to this little mini-series on evangelism. We're going to look at verses 16 to 23, and then we'll look at the rest of this section next week, 24 to 30. This is how Jesus does it. It's a Jesus two-part how-to school of evangelism. Point one, Christ's evangelistic approach Verses 16 to 22, it's based on providence. Verse 16, look at it. And behold, a man came up to him. Stop there. Behold, hey, 
Matthew's saying, hey, look up. Think about this. Jesus, he's walking along and somebody came up to him. That's when the door is open for evangelism. A lot of times it comes to us. The pressure is on what God is doing, not on your own shoulders in terms of what you think you should be doing. Just being open and ready to share Christ. Jesus had been working his way down alongside the Jordan River back to Jerusalem on the final lap of three years of ministry. He's heading in to become that sacrificial lamb. And on the way in Perea, there were different parents who begin to mob Jesus and bring their child infant and say, please, let me just put the child on your lap and bless them, pray for them. We want them to come to know you, to be in the Lord. And we want you to extend your kingdom to them And this is the absolute opposite picture of what happens next. Mark 10 says that Jesus was setting out on his journey. So immediately following that event with parents and children, he's setting out and this rich young ruler comes in, kneeling before Jesus. This man shows up. And this is someone who's going to try to earn his way in, work his way into the kingdom, which is the exact opposite of a baby, a picture of a baby being laid in Jesus' lap. Whenever someone becomes a Christian, when you became a Christian, you were like a baby being laid into Jesus' lap. That's how much you had to do with your own salvation. You didn't crawl up there. This wasn't your doing. It wasn't your work. We are saved by grace alone, not by works. We have the faith of a child, meaning complete helplessness. God saved me. That's saving faith. This man is the opposite of that. And this is the case Jesus has to work on. He's presented with a rich, young ruler. How do I know he is, he is these things, this young man? Well, Luke 18.18 18 says he's a ruler, which would mean he's Jewish as a synagogue ruler. Matthew 19, 20 and 22, these verses here, he's young. And then Luke 18, 23, he's rich. Probably made his wealth legitimate in a legitimate way because he was a Old Testament law keeper. So he did everything right and he had wealth. He had youthful vigor, which I'm calling health. And he was all about himself. (laughs) I know. It's rhythm rhyme. It's not, yeah, anyway, but it's just to say he had it all. He, he was self-confident and it was working against him rather than for him. Jesus immediately sensed a man that was placing his trust in himself and wanted Jesus to be another notch in his belt, an accolade, an add-on, in addition to all that he's earned, one more thing, for the purpose of eternal life. What do I need to do? It's almost like he's saying, what do I still need to do? I'm here, Jesus. Mark 10, 17 says the man ran up and knelt before him. Could be like a running knee slide coming under Jesus saying, I'm here. I'm here. I'm the rich, young ruler with some ego. He has it all. And yet, even with all that he has, he's still trying to answer an emptiness in his own heart. And the emptiness is, I don't know where I'm going to go when I die. I've set up my life here, but what about the life hereafter? I don't know. I'm concerned about this. And this is where secular society is. This is a person who opportunistically sees Jesus coming and he runs to him. 
I think it is instructive to us that we can allow for things to come to us often in terms of evangelism. As we are going, people are coming to us. Jesus was still lauded as a revolutionary. He wasn't yet a full enemy of the state. The Pharisees were after him, but the crowds would still love him, at least on the initial entry into Jerusalem. He was loved and despised at the same time, and this man is an archetype of an encounter that we will experience over and over and over again as we talk to people about the Lord, especially in a secular society. Well, that's the providence piece in evangelism. Number two, the question that comes. Look at the question in verse 16. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? I don't know if someone will ever ask you this question. They very well might, but... This is the question underneath the question of most questions regarding evangelism because this is the question of which religion path do I take? You've got this path or that path. You've got a wide road and a narrow road. You've got one religion, which is you are saved by grace through faith alone. It's all of what God does. You're the baby that's put in the lap of Jesus by saying, I surrender all. I need to surrender everything. I forsake my sin and I give you Myself with a, with a bowed lordship where I'm saying, Lord, save me. The other path is all the other religions of the world. There's two religions, saved by grace and saved by works. And all of the other religions are saved by works. It's some combination of it. You can always find it. Uh, people will add to the Bible with their testament of scripture. They will make Jesus a created being. So he's someone that we can follow as who earned his status. And it's always earning and keeping your status before God. It's a works-based system somehow, some way where you're earning your way in. And that's exactly what this rich young ruler is saying. What do I need to do? What do I need to do to seal the deal, to get eternal life? He was blind to who he was talking to. He was blind to the fact that he was talking to a savior who he would need to throw himself in front of and say, please save me. And instead he's saying, "Uh, teacher, you're good. I want to be good. So how do I become good enough to get into heaven? He called him good teacher. We know that from the other accounts, Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. Good meaning agathos. Um, The Greek word agathos compared to kalos is both are translated good, but agathos is inherent goodness. You are, he's using flattery speech here. You are inherently good. You're the good teacher. How do I get this inherent goodness like you are? Not superficially good. You're deeply good. I want to be good like you. Nicodemus 3.2 and John 3.2 said the same thing. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. He calls him teacher. He's trying to build himself up in front of Jesus here. The rich young ruler is. And he wants eternal life. Mark and Luke um, translate or, you know, they describe it as how do I have inherited eternal life? How do I inherit eternal life? How do I get it? How do I guarantee that I'll have it where it's stored up for me that I can cash out for all of eternity? How do I get this? It's wanting the fountain of youth. And we know that the story of Ponce de Leon, you know, him looking for the fountain of youth might be legend. It was the 1500s as a conquistador. He was going through the Florida Keys and landing maybe on the west side of Florida looking for 
you know, the fountain of youth. It's like looking for the holy grail. How do I get it forever? In the 50s, I remember the 70s, growing up as a little boy, hearing about Walt Disney and the, the man Walt Disney, how when he had lung cancer, he had made a way for when his, his body shut down to try to keep his organs alive so that he would be resuscitated later, cryogenically freezing himself, putting him in a state of embalmment so that he could be resurrected through science fiction means, <laughs> sci-fi. This idea of having nothing to lose and a weird optimism in technology. I listened to a podcast recently where um, a guy who is a quantum physics scientist named um, Mikio Kaku, I think I'm saying that right, but he basically was speaking in terms of atomic computers and quantum computers of the future. Um, not run on microelectronics and silicon, but things that are, are reduced down to the elemental level where you can work with atoms, breaking them apart or whatever to create energy that will create, that will speed computers at such a speed that the things that we've discovered with computers will, will, you know, be outstripped in ways that we can't even imagine. Unimaginable powers. And I mean, there are all kinds of things that are already happening with computers that are super spooky and scary. But what I picked up from what he was saying primarily is that quantum computers in his mind, his imagination will go at such speed that they'll be able to solve health issues, life-threatening health diseases that then would mean that there'll be a day where quantum computers can grant people eternal life. And that's what he said, granting eternal life because it's solving all the life-threatening diseases. It's removing that so you're you have eternal life. Sounds like what Jesus did. He removed diseases. He granted eternal life. That caught my attention. People want eternal life. What Jesus is doing here with evangelism is simply answering questions. You say, that sounds kind of passive. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You live a life in such a way that people ask you, what's going on? What's different about you? I want to know. You have to commune with God, walk with him, talk with him, believe in him. And people will ask you, what's going on? Why are you different? First Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Sanctify him in your heart. Always being prepared to make a defense. That's the apologetic, being willing to talk about the gospel to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. It's just the gracious Christian life where you're available and open to talk to people about the Lord. And they see your life is different, so they ask you. Christ takes this clear posture, but he uses discernment while he does it. You don't just cast pearls before swine or force feed truth into people's life. It will harden them up. You have to see the open door and discern what's going on and discern what you're supposed to say or not to say in the moment. All these things are what Jesus is modeling. Look what he does in verse 17. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep The commandments. Well, he's talking in terms of the Ten Commandments here, the Decalogue, Exodus 5, Deuteronomy 20. I think I have that right. Might have it in reverse. But all that to say, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, these are 
broken down into what are called two tables. The first table is commandments one through four. They're all about God. You have no other gods um, but the one true God. You don't create a graven image. You don't take the Lord's name in vain. All of these things are Godward commandments. And then the second table is the six final commandments. That's what he lists off here that has to do with how we relate to each other. Remember Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. First table of of the first four commandments is Godward. And then love your neighbor as yourself. That's the horizontal dimension. In these two commands, hold the whole law. The whole law centers on this vertical and horizontal dimension. But you don't get the horizontal right, how to relate to each other, unless the standard begins with God. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's prompting this man to think about God. This man's thinking about himself. I'm rich, I'm young, I'm the ruler, and how do I earn my way in? And Jesus says, basically, why do you ask me about what's good? Why are you talking in terms of being able to earn your own goodness? There's only one who is good. So he just immediately points him upward. There's only God who is good. Remember, he had called Jesus good teacher. He's like, why do you call me good? Those are the other, you know, Mark's and Luke's account. There's only one who is agathos, inherently good, not superficially good. So why do you do this? Well, he baits him with law keeping at this point, which is kind of interesting. He wants him to see that he's not good. By saying what he says in verse 17, and this is the exposure, 17 going into 18. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Kind of baits the hook and sets it with him. You want a law-keeping test? You want a way to earn your way in? Then how do you stand up next to the commandments? Jesus is basically taking the Ten Commandments and holding it back up to this man as a mirror to say, let's look at how good you are compared to the law, which is a reflection of God's goodness. Let's talk about true holiness and true goodness now in terms of your law keeping. This is exposure. Verse 18. Does he take the bait? He said to him, which ones? Which ones? What you got? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself is a basic blanket of all the final Second table commands. He just basically summarizes the second half of the Ten Commandments. Some people might say that's too harsh, but this is how Jesus is trying to expose this man to his own sin. When we speak to people about Jesus or speak to people about coming to Christ, we need to bring up the law and we need to bring up sin. It's not enough just to say that Jesus is gracious and will pick you up where you are and and you know brush you off and make your life better you have to say no you have violated scripture you are born a sinner and you need to repent most people in secular society will look at laws superficially and they'll say yeah i've never cheated on my spouse even if they have i've never robbed a bank even if they've fudged on their federal taxes or rationalized something with ethics i've never lied even though that statement in and of itself is a lie I've never disrespected my father and mother, even though this man's pride is doing that very thing, shaming them. I've never loved someone's needs 
I've never not loved someone's needs more than myself, even when this man's everything was always about himself only. He held up the law. He wanted to shred this man's self-righteousness. Remember, Paul, as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, testified in Romans 7, 7 through 9, that he held up against the law in his own conscience until... It says, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. He was like conscience free. I've passed all the tests. But he says, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. That was the commandment. You shall not covet. He said, for I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. The law undid that Pharisee, and in this case, this religious ruler was hardening instead of softening. He wasn't seeing the idolatry of his own covetousness, that he loved himself, he loved his power, and he loved his money. The Bible says you shall have no other gods, and you can't serve God and money. You can try to get to heaven by holding on to money and wealth as your security and Jesus, but if you try to hold on to both in a sinful, idolatrous way, you will be ripped in two. The Pharisee and the tax collector um, seen in um, Luke chapter 18 is one where two go to the temple to pray, and the Tax collector is one, the Pharisee is the other. Pharisee compares himself to the tax collector. Instead of looking up at God and saying, I'll compare myself to you and and repent, he looks at the tax collector and says, I've paid my tithes, I've done this, I've, you know, I've I pray three times a week, I fast, um, I'm great. I'm good because I'm comparing myself to other people. I know this doesn't sound familiar, but if you're doing that, then you're not going to repent of anything. The tax collector looked up. Actually, he was unwilling to look up. In his heart, he was acknowledging God, unwilling to look up, and he was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That tax collector went away justified, Luke 18, 9 to 14. So back to this ruler, verse 20, his self-assessment is shocking. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Again, this is Jesus using real discernment on this man. He gave him exactly what he needed, and then he exposed him with the law. And now he gives the challenge, verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. The challenge to be perfect is the right challenge. You can't get to heaven unless you are perfect. Sounds crazy, but it's true. But it can't be your perfection. It's not earned perfection. It's a perfect status that God gives to you. It's righteousness that's imputed or given to you, that's, that's outside of you. It's a grace-given status. So how will this man know that he's been given that grace-given status? It's if he's willing to release control of his wealth. Give it all away. Give it away to the poor. Money isn't evil. We need to earn money. We need to supply money for our family. We need to take care of each other. 
It's not a contradiction here. It's just that this man had made his money into an idol and he needed to be willing to lay it down. He needed to be willing to follow Jesus and see that heaven was already there and give it away. You can't take your wealth to heaven. You have to lay it down in terms of ownership. God owns it all. And we follow Jesus. What did this man choose? Look at verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. What that means is he was very sad and ripped apart because he knew at that point that he was going to choose his security in money, his idolatry and worship for money rather than Jesus. And he knew that he would go away unsolved. People that are highly motivated, type A personalities that want to get it done and want to have things solved and want to have the check eternal life is set for them. They get really sad and really discouraged when they realize that they're not willing or able to do that. And he knew he couldn't have it both ways. If Jesus was truly the Messiah and the standard was perfection, then he needed to follow him with a full and complete undying allegiance at that moment. That's what Jesus was saying. We need to challenge people that to be a believer, it means to give your full allegiance to Christ. Not half, but all. We're called to be these people. This man was unwilling to give his full heart and allegiance to Christ. He was unwilling to follow Christ without conditions. People don't chafe at an accommodating Jesus. Listen to that. They like a Jesus who, you know, lets you keep your toys and your, your agendas and your own personal pet things, your secrets, and Jesus. A Jesus plus gospel. Everybody loves that. That's how you build a big church. But it's where you say, no, you have to give your full undying allegiance to the Lord. That's the true gospel. That's the saving message of the gospel. That's the hard sayings of Christ. That's what makes sense of what Jesus is saying here. He went away sorrowful, sad, meaning pain or pained or vexed in his own heart. This is the pain that you see when Paul rebuked the Corinthians. It's the pain in the parable of the unforgiving servant where the others said, that's an injustice. I'm pained by that. It's the pain of those who are left here as unbelievers when Jesus returns, John 16, 20 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. It's pain and sorrow that's hardening the heart. This Rich young ruler, if Jesus had challenged him to leave his synagogue power or, or challenged him to give up his health, would have equally been sad to give those things away. So here's the question leading into next week. Did Jesus fail? Did Jesus raise the stakes too high for this man to enter in? For this man to walk away sad, was that a wrong approach in evangelism? Jesus' point is that these conditions that he set are the only conditions where someone can have eternal life. It's all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in, my, in his presence daily live. I surrender all, right? All, all of it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this message this time and Lord, the challenge to full surrender Lord, that's where we grow. That's where we know you. And we thank you that you are our great um, God and worthy of our complete loyalty and allegiance. And I thank you that, Lord, you never compromised the message. You never lowered the standard because you spoke the truth in love. 
for people to believe and be saved. We thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.